We're, uh, we're still talking about this question of how do we move forward calling ourselves Christian when both historically and presently Christianity is used as a vehicle for bigotry, hate, and violence. And this is one of the questions, that question line that you saw just a minute ago, people texting questions pretty often nowadays, and this was one that haunted me for a while because there's a lot of truth to it. And, and uh, the word bigotry is what's called a floating signifier, So I'm not actually, which, which means if I say the word bigotry and Ryan says the word bigotry and Witt says the word bigotry, we all mean slightly different things. And so I'm actually not even discussing that at this point. I'm kind of des- describing this sermon as Christians behaving badly and that God has a PR problem. We talked about a lot last week. So if you, didn't, if you, if you came last week and you came back, thanks a lot. That means, <laughs> that means a whole lot. This, this thing has been weighty. I mean, it's just weighed on me. It's just been heavy. And, and after, you know, I, I, I busted out of here real quick last week because I had been exposed to COVID. So I masked and took off. And for, for, for days, it was just like, Ugh, just feeling of meh. And that was kind of the point of last week's sermon is that we want to feel the meh. This is, this is the ad we've been running on Facebook. It was, it was a little more controversial when we first posted it, but we, it got sent to Facebook jail, so we had to put a question mark on it. Questions, Christians and bigotry. Yep, it, it got booted. And some of the responses have been predictable, but stunningly awful. And I, what I really wanted to do was just rail on the trolls this morning and... and and talk about it, but I'm not going to. But I do want to post two little brief excerpts from things that were posted. The first one was from somebody who didn't even hear last week's sermon. But one of the first things they threw out was this comment. There are many things in black culture that most people find to be unacceptable. I had an old pastor that used to say the spirit of slap would hit him every now and then. And that's, that's kind of how I felt about this. There's so much to say about it, but I'm going to pass. But when we talk about bigotry, when we throw out the word bigotry or hate and violence, there, there's two main categories that, that pop up, and that's the, the category of race and the category of sexuality, in my opinion. Those, those are the things people think of nowadays. And it's, it's a little unfair to lump them together into to one sermon or one sermon series because they're completely different categories and completely different uh, areas with, with a lot that interlink as far as how people are treated and how people are treated by people in authority and people with, with uh, spiritual authority in particular. But... This statement was made, and, and my friend Quan Founder so eloquently and perfectly responded to this person. So I, if, you, if you're interested in reading more, just go, go read that chain, which, which I think Quan said some of it has been deleted at this point. I didn't delete it. So Facebook must not be very happy about some of the things going on there. But this other person who wrote page after page of text in response, they, they did watch my sermon because I sent it to them, and they, they watched it page after page with lots of all capital letters. And I don't know if you know this, but when you type in all caps, what are you doing? You're yelling. And so this person would, you'll see. So this was an excerpt from these pages of dialogue, which I honestly didn't read all of. It says, we need to boldly but gently and in loving hope. Listen to this. Boldly but gently and in loving hope is what this person says. And then this person insults the entire community. Tell LGBT, XYZ, LMNOP, and trans people and every other expression of sexual anarchy so popular in today's world that their lifestyle is seriously sinful. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not getting into sexual theology during this series. I, I would love to have those conversations. It's something I've spent probably more time thinking about than much of anything else for the last 10 years. But to call them the LGBT XYZ LMNOP is to belittle them, purposefully, purposefully belittle them. And that's, that's what we're talking about during this series. We're not talking about whether it's 
sinful or seriously sinful. We're not even addressing those things. And I think those are important conversations that I'm willing to have and I'm happy to have. What I'm talking about is treatment. What I'm talking about is how the religious community has treated people. And this is just another descriptive of exactly what I'm talking about. Historically and presently, this stuff exists. Now, I'm going to read an an excerpt from from this book that I mentioned last week called Heavy Burdens. It's the weights that seven ways that LGBTQ Christians experience harm in the church. And I'm going to offer another trigger warning that this is going to be painful if you are particularly in that community, but I hope that all of us can feel the pain of it. It's hard, but I wanted to read it. So here goes. Christians continued to work against the love of God in Brian's life. He decided to attend seminary where his roommates pegged him as being effeminate. As a joke, they hogtied his hands and feet at seminary, locked him up in their bedroom closet, leaving him bound and gagged for hours. Humiliated, Brian never reported the incident. Instead, he tried to move on, accepting employment at a church where he completed his studies over the next few years. After serving faithfully for a period of time, rumors leaked that he was gay. Within days, he was terminated from the ministry. He tried attending a different church, but this church got word from his old church that he was gay. The new pastor contacted Brian's seminary and informed the leadership that Brian, who was celibate, was sleeping around with guys. The seminary expelled him a month before graduating with a master's degree. Of course, not every Christian in Brian's life was treated him poorly. Several years ago, one of the boys, now grown, who used to beat him up at church, reached out to him and apologized in tears for what he had done. Someone else from Brian's high school also reached out and offered a similar apology. Brian explained to me that he won't ever be able to be friends with either of them, but their genuine grief and repentance brought him a degree of healing. As a result of these conflicting and traumatic experiences, Brian's relationship to the church remains complicated even as he holds on to his faith. Recently, he ran into another one of the Christian boys from his high school who tied him to a tree and beat him nearly unconscious. Hoping that perhaps this man's heart might have changed like the other two men, Brian asked him if he regretted what he had done. The man replied, and forgive my language, hell no, you're an effing fag. And the author says that very few Christians would outright condone such behavior, like if you went around the room or you polled all the Christians in America right now, it'd be a very small percentage that would say hoorah to the person who would say such a thing to him. But it's just an illustration that this kind of thing does still go on. So that, that's been the big gripe about the sermon series in, in general. There's a lot of gripes about the sermon series. But, but in general, it's that historically, yes, these awful things happen, but that was then and this is now. This is now. These stories are now. And her book is chock full of these experiences. We talked about the Crusades and the atrocities committed during the Crusades where for political and geographic power, wholesale slaughter occurred of Jews and pagans and heretics and Muslims and the infidels. We talked about the Inquisition where on pain of torture, people were forced to repent, confess, and convert. We talked about the displacement of Native Americans and natives in general and how when theology and government sometimes, again, there's so much to say about all these points. I'm I'm never saying don't be involved in politics or don't be involved in government, but there are times when Christianity and government have held hands and it's turned pretty ugly pretty fast. We talked about chattel slavery and who who was the driving force behind 
the enslavement of Africans. And does anybody remember the one word that popped up? It was theologians. The theologians were, were spearheading this mission to own people. What we didn't talk about is Jim Crow laws and segregation and redlining and, and the residual impact of that mentality spearheaded by the theologians that has kept a people group oppressed for, for a lot of years. And we've made a lot, a lot of headway, but this is, a, this is something I recently learned. That, and, we, and we have. We've made tremendous strides, and we're going to continue to make tremendous strides in this area. But I learned that in 1870, the 15th Amendment offered black people the right to vote. But it wasn't until 1965 that local and state legislation was kind of enforced, that that, that, that law was enforced. So, so listen to this. The Rolling Stones had recorded their first album before black people were given the right to vote in America. This is a pretty recent event. And the theologians were a huge, huge part of this conversation, and we have to own that. I'm not saying you own those particular decisions, but we as a community and our PR problem and our, meh, we've got to face this stuff down. We talked about the witch trials. We talked about the ridiculous amount of abuse, both sexual, mental, physical, that has occurred from clergy and from other religious leaders. And again, I walked away going, oh, man, it's just... It's just heavy. And so I've decided that the heaviness is going to continue for one more week, and then one more week after that, and I think we're going to do something cheery after that, but I'm not sure. So we have this question line, and this was the question that was sent in, and we're going to focus on the how pretty quick. We're going to get there soon. How do we move forward calling ourselves Christian when both historically and presently Christianity is used? And this is, this is, this is honest. This is true. Is it universally used? No. Is it representative of what Christ taught? No. But is it used for bigotry, hatred, and violence? Yes. We have to say yes. But we're gonna, before we get to the how do we move forward, the how question, we're going to tackle a couple other questions, these questions of what and why. And last week, and for my very brief introduction this morning, we've been talking about the what. What is the ugly stuff? And there's a lot of ugly stuff that has occurred and is continuing to occur. But before we get to the how we move forward, we're going to talk about why. Why is the ugly stuff occurring? Why has the ugly stuff occurred? And I've got two words for you that I think kind of sum it up. Frailty and depravity. And I think Christian theology accounts for... So Christian theology has never said the people of God will be perfect people. And, and again, I, I'm, not, I'm not defending the thesis at all. I'm, I'm saying as we approach this question of how, we have to understand why, because we have to deal with the why to figure out the how. Last week, we talked about how, if you could look at the, the history of the automobile or the history of vehicles in general, you would see a lot of really great stuff. You'd, people, you'd see people caring for their elders. You would see people dropping off food for people who don't have food. You would see people giving rides to people who don't have rides. You would see people visiting family, and you would see couples holding hands for the first time. You'd see a lot of beauty. But if you could see the entirety of the history of the vehicle, you'd see a whole lot of ugly too. Just this year, we had somebody run a truck, an SUV, into a parade at full speed. You would see people running over their neighbors. You would see people departing in anger. You would see all kinds, you would see all kinds of hideous things. A lot of bad things have happened in cars and because of cars. And so, we have to ask our question. The question says it's used as a vehicle. Notice that. I appreciated that because it was illustrative. 
Christianity is used as a vehicle. So I want to briefly talk about who occupies this vehicle. Like, who are the passengers in this car? And right now, there are about 2 billion passengers in this car across the planet that wear the label Christian. And I'm going to use... I'm going to use Christian interchangeably with Christian because I hate air quotes, so I'm not going to keep doing air quotes through the whole sermon. Every time I say Christian, I don't want to have to do this, right? I've just, I've just depleted my air quote quota for the entire year. Done. There's this sentence that helped me so much, and there's some Greek words in it, and I've, I've shared it with you before, but it, it, it helps to understand this question of who's driving the car, who's occupying the car, and it's this. All kakia is hamartia, but not all hamartia is kakia. Now, hopefully, some of you, at least at this point, know what one of these words means. What is hamartia? Okay, so you, you get preaching my sermon. Yeah, very good. So it's the fatal flaws. It's the sin. It's, it's the, the tragic flaw of the epic hero, basically, in Greek mythology and Greek stories. And so in English, it's always translated sin. When you read the Bible, it's always translated sin. Anybody know, anybody know what kakia is? It's what? No, that's, uh, uh, that's just Kia. Ikea is a superstore. Kakia is translated as wickedness in Scripture. So then when you look at this, ver- this, this little statement, it starts to make sense. All wickedness is sin, but not all sin is wickedness. And we learn that all our hamartolos... Every, everybody is hamartolos, which is, anybody want to guess? Sinners. Everyone is sinners, but not all are kekos, the wicked, right? And so Christian theology universally has held this premise that all are hamartolos. All have missed the mark. All are frail. All make bad decisions. All have traces of evil and wickedness in them. But it doesn't mean that every single person is wicked, and then, boy, we're really diving in deep here. Okay, here we go. There are hamartolos who are dikaios and hamartolos who are atticos and more apt toward kakia. I said it. <laughs> dikaios is the righteous. Dikaiosune is the Greek word for righteousness, and it doesn't mean what we think it means. We've talked about that a lot in here. Dikaiosune is like God's thumbs up. It's like divine approval. It's, it's, a, it's a, a relational word connected to behavior and posture and vector orientation. And, and it's, it's this idea that some are facing God and God is facing them and they are seeing one another and some are facing away from God. And so all sinners are either dikaios or, or adikos. Adikos is the opposite of dikaios. And that would be the unrighteous in scripture. That's what you would see. I don't want to get too much into this. It's, it's the study of soteriology, but let's put it this way. Hamartolos is an archery term. Or hamartia is an archery term, and hamartia means to miss the mark. So you're, you're shooting for a bullseye, and my, my son is an archer at this point. He just competed in the national tournament last week, which was pretty exciting, and did well. He, he, he did well. Uh, but they're aiming for that bullseye, and guess how many of those archers out of thousands hit bullseye every single time? None. That's the, that's the idea between hamartia is you can try, even, even those that try and try and try and try are going to fail and fail and fail and fail. Now, kakia would describe the archer that turns around and starts shooting at the crowd. 
See, there's archers that aim for the target. There's archers that don't give a rip about the target. And here's the, here's, here's the problem, is in this vehicle called Christianity, we have both. We have all kinds of people, some who are just frail and trying and aiming and misfiring and shooting poorly and sometimes hitting the mark and sometimes not. And then you've got the depraved that don't care about the target at all. And they're using the vehicle for their own personal power and means. And in the vehicle, you have two billion folks that are somewhere in that mix. You've got some who are just brute carnal beasts that don't give a rip about humanity and don't care about people at all. You've got some that are disconnected from the vehicle, don't much care, but they're along for the ride. And then you've got those that are sitting in the driver's seat trying, trying to let the steering wheel take it where, where, where it wants to take them and never seeming to always hit the mark. And that's all you have in the car. You don't have any perfect folks in the car. You don't have anybody that hits the mark every single time. That's who's along for the ride. And so we've got this big picture problem of the church and how much brutality and violence and hatred and bigotry and suffering it's caused. Christian theology says, of course. It doesn't excuse it. It just says, of course. Because there's this universal problem called hamartia that every single person has. It means they are never going to hit the mark entirely. And then you couple that with people who don't care about the mark at all, and it's trouble. So I want to talk real, real briefly. I say real briefly. That's a lie. I just lied to you. Hamartia at its best. I want to talk about three areas that I think are kind of universal human conditions that when you connect them with theology... They can become really ugly really fast. And it's number one, the tendency to preserve and elevate self. This is every human being. Every human being ever has this tendency. It doesn't mean they always do it. It just means the tendency is there for every human being. And because the tendency is to preserve and elevate self, then therefore is, there's this tendency to have this selfish grasp of power. And then finally, because there's a selfish grasp of power, there's this tendency, therefore, to either subjugate or castigate others. And then you add theology to this mix... And it becomes not just ugly, but hypocritical. Because theology is supposed to fix the human condition, right? And so if you warp theology and warp Christianity and warp the scriptures and try to, try to control it, things can get ugly really fast. And these things, to preserve and elevate self, grasp at selfish power and subjugate and castigate others, these are the opposites of the way of Christ. It's the great reverse. Jesus taught the other thing, the alternative to this is the way of Jesus. And so we're going to go through each one of these briefly. Again, I'm lying to you. There's a tendency to preserve and elevate self. And, and here's what happens is everybody takes care of themselves. It's part of the natural human condition. It's not even entirely wrong. It can just be used for wrong in great ways. But then you start tying theology to it, and you start tying specifically to it the concept of what they call performanceism which is, I must be better. And you can, easily, you can easily, easily get this in Scripture. You can easily read Scripture and say, well, Scripture demands that I become better, that I become good, that I become righteous, that I become holy. And then you couple that with the natural inclination to try to preserve and, and promote life or elevate self. And you get, you, know, you get to the point where when the fat calipers hit a certain number, then I will feel okay about myself. 
when the, the weight on the scale becomes a certain number, or the number in my checking account, or the initials after my name, or the countries that I've traveled to, or the languages I speak, or the friends that I have, or the likes that I have on Facebook, or the Instagram posts that are fo- the followers I have on Instagram. And we can have this performance mentality that says, I must become better. And it's, it's existential. It's I must become better so that I can be valuable. And it can be easily, easily a corrupting mix. And then when you add scripture to the mix, and some of you are going to recognize some of these passages and you're going to know how to fill in the blanks. Don't shout it out. Don't be that guy. If you, want, if you, if you read scripture as we are more than conquerors, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I can do all things. We become the righteousness of God. This is where you land. I am better. I must be better. Somehow my spirituality and my faith is tied to me conquering to me being victorious, whether it's over, over other people, whether it's over my financial situation, whether it's over the fat on my body, whatever it is, I've got to beat, I've got to win, I've got to conquer. I heard this guy speak just recently, David Zoll, he says this, performancism turns life into a competition to be won or a problem to be solved, as opposed to a series of moments to be experienced or an adventure to relish. I also saw this quote somebody posted on Facebook the depository of all global knowledge. Most people I have met that are full of hate are really at war with themselves. Mmm. That's good. I just said, mmm, like I was eating chocolate or something. That was, that was really weird for a second there. I'm, i got to shake that out. She says, the Sadducees and Pharisees tried, making, tried to make getting close to God complicated. So here's the rub. When you have that view of yourself, you're bound to carry it over to others. When you have the view, must win, must be victorious, must be better, it naturally carries over to others. And, and see how this idea of making it complicated to get close to God is the opposite of what Jesus taught. Jesus said, turn, the kingdom of God is here. It's here now. It's his work that he's doing. It's the opposite. And that's why he railed on the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the, politi- and the political and religious leaders of his time so much. That's, that's who he nailed. It wasn't the, the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the thieves so much. It was the ones putting heavy weights on people, heavy burdens on people. And I love, love, love this passage out of Hebrews. It says, For whoever has entered into God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now listen to this. This is so great. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest. What are we supposed to strive for? Rest. Not doing and being and going and having. It's the opposite of all that. And when you take it as doing and being and going and having as the end-all, be-all of life, it corrupts everything. And it has this ripple effect that, that once, once you arrive at that performanceism mentality, and you see what, see what we've done here? We've taken a big picture problem. The church is messed up. The church has been ugly. The church, there they are. The church has done horrible things. And we're breaking it down to people who are sitting in some comfy chairs here at Daylight Church and the people who are watching online and me. We're taking what was then, what was them, and bringing it to what is now and what is me. And this mentality is corrupting and ugly, and it leads to corrupting and ugly places. And so we buck against it. If we're going to strive, if we're going to work hard, what are we going to work hard at? Resting. Not freaking out. 
not worrying. And then what happens is if you're, if you're a performancist, that's a word I just made up, if you're a performancist, then not only do you view theology a particular way, but then you'll have this tendency to try to control everything. When, when your value is based on your performance or your owning or your being or your doing or your having, when your value is based on that, then there's this particular need to grasp everything, to control everything, to control your circumstances, to control your bank account, to control your weight, to control your relationships. To con- and that ultimately, as we'll see in just a second, turns into how you control other people because you can't control your environment without controlling people, right? This brilliant speaker, Cheryl Nimhard, I don't know why the quote is doubled up, like I have double vision right now. She said this, Jesus-centered power is not closed-fisted. It is open-handed. Power that leans on violence or oppression or marginalization of others is not Jesus-centered. Operating, leading, conducting yourself in fear of losing power is not open-handed, Jesus-centered power. But you have to ask the question, if the goal is right-living having, owning, performing, becoming, how can you not grasp at power? You see, it's, 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 a, it's a natural response, a natural effect when that is your life's goal. Instead, it runs contrary to what Jesus taught, that whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And this idea that I must own, I must control, I must do, I must be, I must advance, It causes us to grasp control, and when we grasp control, it most certainly forces us to attempt to control others, to attempt to put other people in their particular place so that our life can be what it was supposed to be or what we envision it is supposed to be. So the tendency, therefore, it's going to go one way or the other. You're either going to subjugate, you're either going to bring people under your control, or you're going to castigate them because they refuse to be controlled. And that's what's happened globally. That's what continues to happen is people want control, they want to own, and therefore they'll say, you're either with me or you're against me. That's kind of the mentality. And it's a very unhealthy, in my opinion, unbiblical mentality that is the opposite of love. Love cannot control. Love requires a lack of control for it to be legitimate Love. This is my friend Meg Botts, and Meg Botts runs a ministry called Kaleidoscope that you should look up, and you should listen to everything she has to say because she's brilliant. Probably not everything. Don't don't even listen to everything I have to say. There's one you should listen to everything you say, but you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, I don't I don't even know what I'm talking about right now. Case in point, but somebody on her on her Facebook page asked her about. So she runs this ministry, Kaleidoscope, that's about the intersection of sexuality and faith and, and bringing people from across the aisle to the table together to converse and touch and talk and eat together and learn. And It's a brilliant ministry. But somebody on her Facebook post said, but how do you handle the Bible and homosexuality? They, that, that, was, that was their question. And they, they, Actually, I'm the one pounding the pulpit. They weren't pounding the pulpit at the time. I, I apologize for that. But they, they wanted to know... How does she handle what the Bible has to say about homosexuality? And she responded with a, with a retelling. So become her friend on Facebook, and you can read it. I'm not, I'm not scared for you to read this stuff. But she responded with a retelling of the Good Samaritan with new characters. One was a drag queen, one was a lesbian, and so forth. 
And she retells this story, and, and I just thought it was beautiful and exceptional. But then she followed it up with this. She said, the priest and the Levite, these are the ones who walked past the, the person on the side of the road, that ignored the person on the side of the road, right? The priest and the Levite were seeking with all their hearts to honor the law, and yet according to Jesus, they were not the neighbor. Jesus, for lack of a better word, celebrated. It was the one who worshiped wrong, who risked exile from the congregation, who was honored by Jesus in this parable. It was one who made a decision to touch, to hold, to carry, to offer rides to, to offer housing for, and to give handouts to an unclean person. When we want to control and own, when we want to own and advance and become better and become good, a lot of times, and, and again, there are tendencies. It doesn't mean this happens every time. These are the tendencies that we have to guard against. Then we want to manipulate our circumstances. We want to own and control the stuff around us, and we want to control, own and control the stuff around us. That naturally includes owning and controlling others, which is the opposite of what Jesus taught in the Gospels, in my opinion. It's certainly the opposite of what the, the point of the Sermon on the Mount. The point of the Sermon on the Mount was this. Somebody said, What's, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus basically says, soothe other people's wounds. The one you think is unclean. This is, this is Jesus' answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It was basically, soothe the wounds of others. There was this time in the garden where one of Jesus' disciples grabbed a sword and hacked off part of the face of a, the, the ear of one of the guards that had come to get him. And Jesus grabbed that ear and put it right back on the soldier and healed him and said this to Peter. He said, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And I'm convinced that when Jesus spoke, there were multiple layers to a lot of it. And when he performed a miracle, there was both the literal miracle and the figurative teaching undergirding it. And here, if we take this as a figurative meaning, there, there's certainly literal meaning to it. But if we take it as figurative, how does that apply to our need to break down and cut down and subjugate and castigate people? It doesn't, it doesn't end pretty for the one riding in the vehicle who that's how they use the vehicle. Do we want, do we like the idea of conversion by the sword or conversion by a cross? Conversion by you must or conversion by I will lay down my life? I think they're important questions to ask. Andy Crouch says this, he says, the Christian vocation, it seems to me, is to spend our power to empower those who have been powerless. I always loved the quote from the comedian who says, I was, the, I was in the 10% of the class that made the, 90%, the top 90% possible. I got a laugh out of Chris Booker. My life is complete. I have arrived. This is kind of the, the cross way. It's I make myself low. I give up power. I, I, I strive only to rest. I give up life. I let go of control. I don't have to own you. I don't have to, I don't have to fix you. I don't even have to fix me. Fixing is not, is not the goal. Resting is the goal. So then when we go from why to how, which is part of the question, and this is what we're going to get to next week. So we've done the what. Today we're talking about the why. Next week we'll talk about the how. How do we move forward? I'm, I'm, I'm looking at that as how do we, how do you and I, the people sitting in here and the people watching online, the people that we have some connection with, how do we move forward? I, we, can't, we can't fix the church universal, but what we can do is work on ourselves, 
work on one another with one another and try to build a church that loves the way Jesus did. But the answer to the question, the easiest answer is we don't. Again, we could say, how do we move forward? And we could say, well, we've got to strive. We've got to work. We've got to be better. We've got to do better. We've got to preach the right sermons. We've got to have the right small groups. We've got to show up for the right functions. We've got to feed the homeless. We've got to do this and that and that and that. And you see, it's no different. It's the same stuff. When you go back to these scriptures that we use, we are more than conquerors. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I can do all things. We become the righteousness of God. What's missing? It's in him. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In Christ, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In him, we become the righteousness of God, that dikaiosune theo. In him, we become, we become the smile of God. We become the thumbs up of God. How? In him. It's getting outside of us. So there's this big picture problem of bigotry, hatred, and violence. And a little, little, the little solution is, I mean, uh, there's, there's a big picture problem of all this stuff. And then there's the little picture problem of this stuff is propagated by individuals. And then individuals get together and ugly things happen. And the solution is kind of the opposite of that. There's this big picture solution. The whole church needs to change, and we need God to show himself and do something amazing. But it starts with you right here in this pew today, and it starts with me standing on this platform. And it's, we, need, we need Jesus. We need Jesus to do what Jesus does in our lives. And all we strive to do is just let him. It's a, it's a letting. It's a closed it's, it's an open hand. It's, it's, it's instead of owning and grasping, it's a letting. It's a letting go. So what was Christ like? And then I'm done. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. The cross is, Jesus, is God showing himself, laying down the need for self-preservation. Don't, don't you see if... If, if it's true that he could have come off the cross at any time, if it's true that he didn't have to go to the cross, then he's illustrating something for us. Let go of the need to live. Let go of the need to own, to, to, to advance, to control. Instead, let go. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the cross, he was laying down control. You, you see, that literally having your hands and feet nailed to wood is not just figuratively, but literally letting go of control. If it's true that he could have stopped them, then he was volunteering to abandon control. He himself bore our hamartias in his body on the cross so that we might die to hamartias. This is a word that I want to drive through your heads. And live for dikaiosune. By his wounds, you have been healed. So there's this universal need to advance and preserve. He laid that down on the cross. There's this universal need to grasp at power. He laid that down on the cross. There's this universal need to castigate and subjugate. He did the opposite. It's by his wounds, it's by his actions on the cross that healing comes, that soothing comes, that calming comes. And it says this dikaiosune is given through faith in Jesus Christ. And this Greek word faith is pistos. 
Empistos is like trust in action. And I always use the same example. When you sat in your chair today, you pistos the chair. Oh, that sounds terrible. That sounds really horrible. <clears throat> the Greeks would understand that. You placed, your, you placed your faith in the chair. You sat down, and you didn't think about the chair. You didn't stand over the chair and go, well, I wonder if this one's going to hold my weight. You, you, you were convinced, so you rested. It's that kind of thing. It's, it's placing your trust in. It's, it's I see it. I'm giving myself over to it, and it's done in Jesus Christ. So next week, we're going to talk about particulars on how. But for this week, what we're going to say is, how do we move forward is found in a who. That's the question is who. Not me, him. Not us, him. So talking point, a lot of times we stick around if you want to. There's great food now. Sarah, thanks for that. And uh, there's some great food back there that you're welcome to get, and I encourage you to linger, hang out. But at some point, ask this question to one another. If you're comfortable, if you're an introvert and you're like, you hate this idea, then don't. It's cool. But if you're, if you're good with it, then do that. This is a good talking point for today.